Baptist Children's Church at this time. And I hope you all have a good time out there. Have fun. Just one, one just quick word of announcement before we get into the message. Should have gotten a VBS invitation. Who is Vacation Bible School for? It is for kids. Uh, we're doing from youngest, I think, but two all the way to sixth grade. Uh, so get this out if you're, if you're not a kid or you don't have kids in your household. This is for you to give to someone who does have kids, right? It makes sense. Vacation Bible School. So your job is to get this to somebody this week. And invite them to sign up for VBS. How can they sign up? On the back, there's this funny-looking code, a QR code. They can just scan that with their phone. Take them right to the website to register for VBS. By the way, if you're a kid here today, a child here today, or you have kids in your family, go ahead and sign them up for Vacation Bible School if you're going to be around. That is June 14th to the 18th. Um, we're going to have a VBS outreach and decoration party this Saturday. Call it a party. It's more fun, right? 9 a.m. on Saturday. If you would like to help get word out or you would like to help decorate, just show up here at the church. We'll be doing those things concurrently. So those who are good at decorating will do decorating, and those who are good at talking to people will go out and pass out invitations. It's going to be a ton of fun. So Saturday, 9 a.m., come on out for that. This is starting just next week, guys. This is just around the corner. So the time to get word out is now. We've got other little invitations, little business card-sized ones to take. Maybe there's places you go that... You know, there's always families who go to those places. There's places you shop that you can maybe leave those on the counter. Get those out. Take them with you. Uh, they're no good to us after Vacation Bible School, so let's use them. All right, that's the plug for VBS. Uh, if you go ahead and take your Bibles and go with me to the Gospel of Luke, we'll be in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 this morning in God's Word. Today is June 6th. Uh, and hopefully today, June, June 6th, jogs your memory, because 77 years ago today was that event that we know in history as D-Day. 77 years ago today, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in Nazi-occupied Europe and began the process of liberating Europe. Now, if you don't know much about D-Day, jump on, on to History Channel or somewhere. I'm sure there's specials going on today or YouTube. Go, go learn about it. An amazing event it's probably the most audacious amphibious landing in history, bringing tens of thousands of troops onto shore under the machine guns of the Nazis. Uh, just incredible heroism. Have you heard of the uh, Point de Hoc, the, the army rangers who scaled the cliffs on ladders while the Germans were dropping hand grenades on them? Just incredible bravery. By the way, if you want a good speech, there's a great Ronald Reagan speech celebrating the history of, of D-Day. Those who landed at one of the beaches known as Omaha Beach uh, were met with a wall of lead bullets. By the end of the day, Allied forces had carved out a tiny toehold on the European continent at the cost of 4,414 Allied lives. You want to know anything about D-Day? It was a day of extraordinary courage, a day of ferocious fighting, a day of profound sacrifice. And by the way, if you're looking for, for heroes, that's where you, where you want to look. I don't know what the deal is with my generation looking at pop stars and, you know, People like that. And I look back to folks like that who had real heroism. The average age of soldiers storming the beaches was 21 years old. Think about 21 year olds today. I, I don't know, I can't fathom them doing something of that magnitude, of liberating a continent from the grip of tyranny, even at the cost of their own lives. That is, that is incredible. But as I think about that, I think that the, the coming of Jesus into this world and his first coming that we read about in the Gospels was in many ways very much like an invasion. He's coming back into territory that is his, but he's not met with a welcoming committee. Rather, he is met with a wall of lead bullets, if you will. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, we're told in John. As you read through the Gospels, one of the most striking features is the hostility that Jesus met. Right here he is, he's the creator God coming back into his own creation. He's the savior coming to rescue people from the effects of sin. And rather than people being like, yeah, you're the Messiah, you're God, we welcome you. He's met with hostility, he's met with hatred, he's met with rejection. And of course it's all going to culminate by the end of the Gospel of Luke at Calvary, at the cross. Say, man, if God showed up and showed his power, people would welcome him. No, he's done that and they crucified him. That, that, that's how humanity responds to God coming into their world. The reality that Jesus came in, and rather than showing up with just great power and establishing a kingdom, actually was a shock to many of his followers. They knew the prophecies. They knew that Messiah 
must reign. As you read the Old Testament, one thing you'll find is he's going to come, and even the passage that Bill read, that the messenger's going to come, then the Messiah's going to come, and he's going to unleash judgment. And they were, they're, as Jesus goes through his ministry, they're like, where's the judgment? Where's the getting rid of the Romans? Where's the dealing with the opposition? Where's the establishment of your kingdom? It raised some very, very real questions. Instead of being celebrated, he's hated. Instead of being welcomed, he's despised. And eventually pinned to a Roman cross to die an ignominious and a terrible death. So the big question is this. Could he really be the Messiah? What we know from the Old Testament Messiah, reigns Messiah, rules Messiah, judges. Could this Jewish carpenter who's going around teaching and doing acts of mercy and compassion on the least fortunate, could he really be the promised Messiah? Could he really be who it is? Now, that maybe is a question we take for granted. We're, after all, Christians, right? And our foundational belief is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We, we sang that confession together today. But by no means was that taken for granted in Jesus' day. There were real questions, even from someone who knew Jesus well. And that someone was John the Baptist. So pick up with me in verse 18 of Luke chapter 7. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. So the first part of the chapter, Jesus has healed the centurion's son from a distance, which is a pretty incredible miracle. He's raised the the widow's son from the dead. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Here's what the question means. Are you really the promised Messiah? Are you really who you claim to be, or is there someone else that we're looking for? And the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist, okay, John the baptizer, hath sent uh, sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Okay, we continue on, sorry, I'm really thirsty this morning. And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. John's question is probably the most important question any of us can ever ask. Is Jesus the promised Messiah? Is he the divine Son of God? Or do we look for another? Is there some other savior out there? Is there some other deity that we ought to be worshiping? Is there some other religion that we ought to be following? Or is Jesus who he said he was? Listen, it's an exclusive question. One of the amazing claims of Christianity is Christianity claims to be right and every other religion to be false. It's not like the Roman religions where they're like, hey, you can sort of worship all of them together. It's not syncretism. It's not, hey, they can all just have a little bit of truth. Christianity claims to be entirely right. And the others to be wrong. So this is an important question for us to get right. Is Jesus the promised one? Is he the one that the Old Testament predicted? Is he the one that God said would come to deal with the sins of the world? Well, I want to answer that question. And I want to move through the scenes of this passage. I read through the first scene. Very simply, what we see happening in verses 18 to 23 is that Jesus answers John's question. That's our first point this morning. Jesus answers John's question. Now, the last time we saw John the Baptist was back in Luke chapter 3. So just pop back a couple of pages to the left, Luke chapter 3. You may be a little confused. Why is John not coming to Jesus himself? You know, hey, is Jesus' cousin, distant relative? Why does he not show up, ask the question himself? Well, John chapter 3 gave us really 20 verses about John's ministry. And notice verse 19, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch being reproved by John for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evil things which Herod had done, added yet above, uh, yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So John the Baptist is a mighty preacher. He's a bold preacher. And he was not afraid to call out the elite of the day. So here's Herod Antipas, who's, who is the would-be ruler over the region. Uh, he's really a puppet ruler. He is petty. He's vindictive. He's a tyrant. And he is so wicked, he goes and takes his brother Philip's wife and marries her. And by the way, she was actually related to him. The family tree is, is just a mess, like a, a tangled ball of yarn. It is an immoral, wicked thing that he is doing in taking another man's wife. John calls him out for it, and this woman Herodias is like, man, I hate John. How dare he criticize my marriage, this sham marriage to Herod the Tetrarch. That she's like, let's get John arrested. He gets thrown into a prison, 
and there he sits. By the time the story ends, we get this recorded in the other Gospels, uh, John's head is going to be removed. He's going to be executed, right, just for this, this, this act of calling out the ruler's wickedness. So here he is in prison. He's in the fortress called Machairus, which is down near the, uh, the Dead Sea. If anyone knows anything about the, the geography of Palestine, down in that region, it is absolutely desert, right? There's no, no, no wildlife, no brush, nothing growing. It's below sea level. It's hot, and it's sitting on a ridge overlooking the Dead Sea. So here's John in this fortress. By the way, the, the, the name Machairus means a sword, right? This is not a pleasant place to go, to go to a prison called the sword, Above the prison is a palace. So here's John sort of rotting in a prison cell. Above him is Herod and Herodias partying and reveling in their sin, reveling in their wickedness. And John's got real questions. He's thinking, okay, this guy that I predicted back again in Luke chapter 3. Back in Luke chapter 3, he had said to the people that there's one coming after me who is mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and his fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor. He will gather the wheat into his garner. The chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. John's message had been this. There's someone coming after me who's even greater than I am. That He's actually the Messiah, and he is going to bring judgment. And now here he is in prison And the judgment hasn't fallen, and in fact, those who most rightly deserve the judgment are reveling in their sin. So you can understand John's dilemma. This is not a question that he's asking from a place of unbelief, being like, oh, I don't really think Jesus is the Messiah. But this is coming from a place of discouragement. You ever find yourself there? You're like, okay, God, I believe that you're true. I believe your promises are true. But if they're true, why all this wickedness in the world? God, if you're you're really real, if you're really all-powerful, why all this suffering? Why all this rampant evil? Where is the judgment that you've promised? I think that's what John is thinking. And now he's hearing these messages coming back to him that Jesus is performing miracles, but not the kinds of miracles that he thought Jesus would perform. He's not bringing fire down from heaven on the enemies of God, but instead he's raising from the dead the only son of a widow woman. Rather than going out and and delivering Israel, here he is healing the servant of a Roman centurion. And so he's flummoxed, he's perplexed. He's like, how does this fit in with what I know and believe about the Messiah? Are you the coming one? He had earlier said, there is one coming after me who is stronger. Now he says, are you that coming one? Are you the Messiah? So Luke 7, he asks that question. So notice what he does in verse 19. He calls two of his disciples and sends them to Jesus. So as he's in prison, he's able to have visitors come in. It's a little different than our prisons today. They probably would have been responsible for supplying food and that sort of thing for him. He takes these two guys and he says, I want you to go find Jesus and I want you to ask him this question. Now notice verse 20. When the two disciples come to Jesus, they say, John Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? You notice something about their message? They relay word for word exactly what John had asked. Luke, by the way, is the only gospel writer to record the question twice. And I think what he's saying is these guys are a trustworthy witness. These aren't guys who are sort of coming in with sort of starry-eyed idealism. who are going to come back to John with a wonderful message to tickle his ears. They're going to be trustworthy. By the way, that's the reason there's two of them. Jewish law said every word is going to be established with not just one witness, but two or three witnesses. All that to say that the message these disciples bring back to John is going to be true, it is going to be trustworthy, it is going to be right, it is going to be accurate. So here's John in a place of discouragement. Why is he discouraged? He has expectations about what Jesus would do that Jesus isn't meeting. It's dangerous for us to put our expectations on God of how we think God should work this way or God should work that way. Sometimes we convince ourselves that God will work in a certain way and then become really disillusioned when he doesn't. John has this expectation of what Messiah should do. And by the way, many, many people had that expectation. He's not alone in that. And he's now becoming discouraged as it's not working out. Many people, for example, will sincerely, believe it's a sincere belief, believe that, man, if I believe in God, I read the Bible, God will see to it that my business will be blessed, that my marriage will be strengthened and repaired that my sicknesses will be healed. Sincere belief. And they come and they believe in Jesus, and their business doesn't improve. Their marriage actually gets more challenging, right? The sicknesses that they, they thought they would be delivered from are not healed. And they begin to say, are you really this God that I thought you were? Art thou he who should come, or do we look for another? 
You see, what if it's not God's will to heal? What if it's not God's will to, to expand your business? What if it's not God's will to repair your marriage? God's purposes are so much bigger than the purposes we sometimes try to impose on him. He is God, and we, we are not. So Jesus now is going to provide an answer, beginning in verse 21. And this is interesting. He doesn't just say, Art thou he who should come? Yes, send back yes as the answer. No, he doesn't do that, but he's going to give evidence. Verse 21, in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And to many that were blind he gave sight. He's going to sort of provide this, this, these fireworks of divine power for these two witnesses. Here's these two guys sitting there, and, and Jesus is going to do this amazing display of power saying, look at this evidence, look at the things that I'm doing. So we've got infirmities and plagues, both long-term and short-term illnesses. So some of these are those ones that come on you suddenly like a scourge. That's what one of the words is, like a whip that just comes and beats you down. And others are those long-term illnesses that, that just will not go away. Jesus heals both of them. Those who are blind, it says he gave them sight. Interesting, the word gave is related to our word grace. This is a gift. These people don't deserve it. These healings are undeserved, unmerited. And here's Jesus saying, I'm going to give you sight. By the way, the same is true of spiritual sight. It's not something that we deserve or merit or condition in any way. It's a gift of God. That day, blind eyes saw for the very, very first time in their lives. People who had been bedridden bedridden for their entire lives skipped home that day. Those who had been dominated by demons worshipped with restored joy and worshipped with a renewed mind. Jesus showing his power, showing that the kingdom is breaking in and rolling back Satan's domination on the world. These miracles reveal his messiahship. You say, what's the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah? How does Jesus answer the questions? Look at my miracles. These miracles show the kind of Messiah he is. They definitely show his power. They definitely show his divine nature. But notice who he's reaching out to. He's reaching out to those who are sick. He's reaching out to those who are downtrodden, to those who are forgotten, to the poor. His ministry is humble. It's not, he's not walking into the power center of Rome, but he's reaching out to the humble and the unspectacular of the day. So we've got this absolute unleashing of divine power, all for John's benefit. And so Jesus now instructs them to report back. Verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them. So he's not said anything. He does all these miracles. They're just like, wow, this is awesome. Jesus answering said unto them, go your way and tell John, notice this, what things ye have seen and heard. Based on hard empirical evidence, draw your conclusion, John. This is not just, hey, just keep the faith blindly, but here's the evidence, and I want you to report what you have seen and heard. You're like, wow, that's, that's awesome. Guess what? We have a record of what was seen and heard. Matthew gives us a record of what was seen and heard. Mark gives us a record of what was seen and heard. Luke gives us a record of what was seen and heard. John gives us a record of what was seen and heard. And it's recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And you say, well, how do we know these documents? I mean, couldn't someone have come along in the Middle Ages and written them? And they've been translated thousands of times. There's manuscript evidence going back to within decades of the time that these events happened that we know the Gospel of John existed in the form that it is now. Now, it's possible John was lying, and Mark was lying, and Luke was lying, and Matthew was lying, and all these guys were lying, and they had this big conspiracy to just cook the books and make up a story, and then be willing to go and die for it and be tortured for it. That's absurd. Every reason to believe that the record we have here is true. Listen, if you want to see who Jesus is, he's not the Jesus that you imagine. It's not the Jesus that, well, I think he's like this. The Jesus with whom we have to deal is the Jesus who's revealed on the pages of Scripture, Jesus incarnate. James Edwards writes, Jesus is the Messiah, but not the exact kind of Messiah that his generation expects. Whoever desires to know Jesus, John included, can know and believe in Jesus only on the basis of his incarnate life. Not the Jesus that we want him to be, not the Jesus that we fit into our category, but the Jesus of the Bible. We don't get to invent Jesus how we want. We must accept Jesus as he is. We must accept the Jesus who's revealed in the Gospels. So folks will say things like this today, and we're in the middle of of so-called Pride Month, which we're taking the abominable sin of pride and the abominable sin of sexual perversion and putting them together. That's a great mix. I say that sarcastically. I say that sadly. 
People will be like, well, Jesus was, a, was one who preached love and tolerance, and he would be welcoming. That's not what we see on the pages of Scripture. Yes, he is a God of love, but not one who will lie to people. He's not going to lie to people and tell them that their sin is okay. Rather, he's going to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Calling people to forsake their sin and to come to him and find mercy and grace. So yes, he is a savior who accepts and welcomes all who will come to, the, come to him. He's not a savior, however, who simply says, I'm not actually saving you from your sins at all. I'm just going to let you stay in your sins. We come to him just as I am, but we don't stay that way. Right? We come broken, but we don't stay that way. We come in our sin, but we don't stay that way. He transforms, he forgives, he renews. Such were some of you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you're justified. So his miracles, they, they show the kind of messiahship he has. But notice what verse 22 says. Look back at the text with me. Go your way, tell John what you've seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised, and, the, and to the poor the gospel is preached. Even the way that I just read that, do you feel kind of the da-da-da-da-da-da, the rhythm? I love the fact that our translators pulled that out. This is actually sort of written in six lines of poetry. Jesus is pulling together sort of a kaleidoscope, this amazing array of Old Testament prophecies. Here's why these prophecies matter. It's not just, you're doing really cool tricks, you must be the Messiah. But he's doing miracles that actually fulfill prophecy. I want, I want you to follow this, this thread with me. So jump back in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And we're going to do a, just a quick, rapid walkthrough of prophecy. Okay, this is 700 years before Jesus comes. And here's this guy named Isaiah who writes all this stuff down, writes all these prophecies down that Jesus fulfills. You're like, well, how do we... Couldn't that have been written sort of after the fact and doctored up to match the evidence? Well, no, the Dead Sea Scrolls have been discovered that were from before the time of Jesus... And they're in the form that we have with only minor spelling differences. So this is not some Christian editor coming to the book of Isaiah and making it fit what Jesus did. This is, these are real predictions that Jesus fulfilled. So Isaiah 26 and verse 19. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Prediction that the Messiah would raise the dead. What has Jesus just done? He has raised the dead. A few pages to the right. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The poor will have the gospel preached to them. Deliberate fulfillment of prophecy. A few more pages to the right. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Jesus, healing, opening, blind eyes in fulfillment of prophecy. And then, of course, there is Isaiah 61, which brackets this prophecy, which, by the way, is what Jesus preached in his inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61, verse 1, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That's the poor have the gospel preached unto them. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So the miracles Jesus does are not just, hey, here's some random miracles. They fulfill prophecy. What is the likelihood of one guy, Jesus of Nazareth, orchestrating all of these things, having the ability to perform all these miracles, and having this amazing intersection of miracles? I submit to you the intersection of so many miraculous marks was not a mistake and it's not a myth. It is proof that Jesus' identity is that of Messiah. He is the promised one. And you might say, I don't believe it. That's not possible. You say, miracles aren't possible, therefore they didn't happen. That's, that is illogical reasoning to say, well, miracles can't, because miracles happen, can't happen, then therefore they can't happen in the Bible. Well, if there's God, then miracles are possible. Right? If you say there's God, then miracles are possible. Jesus can do this. And the text says that he does. This is divine accreditation of Jesus' mission. Now, back to our text, Luke 7. Verse 23, 
So Jesus performs these miracles, and this shows my kind of messiahship. It shows that I fulfilled prophecy. And then verse 23, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. This is a word to John. This is in the singular. Not blessed are they, but blessed is he. John, the one who is going to be truly blessed, truly happy, truly satisfied, the one who's going to be truly flourishing, is the one who's not offended in me. What does it mean to be offended in Jesus? It's not, oh, I find Jesus offensive. But the idea of offensive is the word scandalizo. You hear the word scandal? The one who is not scandalized. It's defined this way. It is to cause someone to experience anger and or shock because of what has been said or done. It is to cause someone to, be stumble, to stumble or to be entrapped. To put it this way, Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you keep on trusting Even when I don't line up with your expectations, John, keep trusting. John had doubts. John had questions. Listen, it is not wrong to have doubts and questions. Sometimes the the church has not done a good job, and I don't mean this church, but church in general, where people come with questions and doubts. Don't worry about it. Just keep believing. Listen, there are real answers to, to real questions that can be found in God's word. And if you have those doubts, you have those questions, ask them. Right? We have a Q&A time on Sunday nights. Ask those questions. You're like, I'm not understanding something. This isn't making sense. I want, I want a good answer. That's where John's at. There's a difference, by the way, between a skeptical question of, ooh, so what about this? And a, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me understand? That's John's kind of question. There's proof. Jesus will point to the empirical proof of what he's done. He's going to point to the scriptural proof of how prophecy is fulfilled, and then he is going to call him to faith. Listen, it is not an inadequate answer to say, here's the biblical evidence you need to believe it. Some people are like, oh, you're just blind faith. No, it's not blind faith that has evidence, but faith is necessary. And Jesus is saying, John, keep trusting. Saying, John, I want you to believe in the dark what you knew was true in the light. I want you to believe when things are bad what you knew was true when things were going well. Trust my perfect plan. And by the way, guess what God's perfect plan involved? John was going to be sprung out of prison by angels and carried to heaven on a, on, a, on a magic carpet. No. John's head would be cut off, served on a platter to the vindictive king. That was God's plan for John. God's plan was not that Jesus would rally the nation and establish a kingdom and overthrow Rome. It was that he would be despised and rejected and he would go to the cross. You see, sometimes God's plan is not... Everything's going to be sunshine and roses. Sometimes God's plan is suffering. Sometimes God's plan is death. Sometimes God's plan is heartache. But it's God's plan nonetheless. And blessed is he who is not scandalized when things don't go your way. More to the point, Jesus is saying, John, don't be scandalized by the fact that I'm not the kind of Messiah that you and everyone else expected. I'm not here to be a Roman or to be a Rome-slashing general, but a sin-smashing savior. He didn't come to overthrow the power structures. He came to establish his kingdom in righteousness, to offer forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. A very real answer to a very real question. But we might be thinking, okay, John, what a, what a loser, right? Like He's in prison and he's having questions. Raises a question, and maybe Jesus doesn't think that much of John. So we come now to our next scene in verse 24. And we see here that Jesus is going to affirm John's greatness. He's going to affirm John's role that he has in salvation history. And when the messengers of John were departed, Luke 7, verse 24, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. Who is John the Baptist? Why does he matter? By the way, John the Baptist is not the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. That's John the Apostle. Common name. Okay, there's a bunch of people named John in the Bible. Verse 24. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously appareled and live delicious or delicately are in king's palaces, king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yes, yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
Jesus is going to affirm the role that John plays. Now, here's why this is important. The big question, who is Jesus? You're like, well, he's talking about John. That's got nothing to do with Jesus. Actually, it does. The ministries of John and Jesus are interwoven. So if John is the great prophet, he is the fulfillment of Malachi 3 and verse 1, then that says something about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is not going to just get up and be like, I'm the Messiah, I'm God in the flesh. That's going to be misunderstood. But he's going to leave breadcrumbs to lead people to that conclusion that if John the Baptist is who Jesus says he is, then Jesus is the Messiah. So this really is, even though he's dealing with the role of John, behind it is sort of a, a, a roundabout way to come back to dealing with the identity of who Jesus is. So who is John? What is his role? Well, 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 sort of three facts about John. First one is he's a prophet. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now, notice he asks that question three times. That's good rhetoric. Repetition, right, is a great, uh, is a great tool of rhetoric. We think about the great speech. I have a dream. I have a dream. I, it, just, it builds the, the, to the conclusion that you, that, that you anticipate. Jesus asking the question, what did you go out to see? It kind of brings his listeners in onto the edge of their seat. So he's saying John is a prophet. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. He's a prophet and much more than a prophet. Now, notice what he says he's not. Verse 24, did you go out to see a reed shaken with the wind? Okay, so reeds are these little wispy things that grow in the desert. Jesus could be saying, did you go out to see the scenery in the desert? Or he could be using this as a metaphor for John. If you have a little reed and the wind comes through and it's waving all over the place, he says, did you go out and see some guy who's a pushover? No. John the Baptist, here's something you, you, you would know from just reading what we've read already today. The dude's not a pushover, right? Someone who's willing to go into Herod the Tetrarch, who's a really, really bad man, and be like, you shouldn't marry your brother's wife. That guy's got some backbone. He's got a spine of steel. He's got real courage. He's not someone who gets pushed around. So Jesus is saying he is a prophet. He is bold. He is courageous. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? You didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. You didn't go out to see a wimp. John was a man's man. He's not like those clergymen on those Jane Austen things, right, who are always kind of effeminate and oily and greasy, and you're just kind of like, ugh, they're just kind of in it for the money. No, that's not John the Baptist. This man is manly. He's masculine. He's strong. He's someone we would look at and be like, that guy is courageous. I want him in my corner. That's John the Baptist. He asks now in verse 25, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Uh, that word soft, okay, that's the literal rendering. Even the word effeminate could fit in. Someone who's dressed nicely in all the latest fashions of the day. No, you didn't go see John because of his fashion statement. John didn't dress in fancy outfits. What did he wear? He wore camel skin. Okay, you weren't out there because of the externals, because of his position. He says, behold, they that are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately, those who live luxuriously, they're in king's palaces. I, that's Herod. People, people who dress fancy, that, that's Herod. Those people of political power, John the Baptist was not a man of political power. What was he? What went you out to see? Verse 26, a prophet. What's a prophet? Someone who speaks the mind and the will of God. Someone who gets a message from God and delivers it boldly without altering the message to the people of God. What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Back one last time to, to Luke chapter 3. Let me give you a sense of his message. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said unto the multitude that came forth to be baptized by him, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He calls his audience a bunch of snakes. He says, you guys are duplicitous snakes. You are evil. You are like Satan. You need to flee from the wrath to come. The fire is coming. You need to flee. Bring forth, verse 8, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wow! That is not a... Joel Osteen message that you would hear on TBN. This is not a nice little tickling people's ears. This is a message from God. It has the authority of heaven. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Be baptized in, in faith in anticipation of the one who is coming. For what it means to be a prophet. A prophet is not someone who's going to be popular. And listen, today we need, 
In the Christian world, we don't need more people who are going to be politicians, who are going to try and appease different factions, who are going to try to curry power with right-wing or left-wing politics. We need prophets who are going to proclaim God's message. Now, God's not giving us a new revelation. He's given us his word. People who are going to proclaim God's word line upon line, precept upon precept, word by word, that is what is needed in this day. That was what was needed in John's day. You might say, well, they really needed political deliverance from Rome. They really needed social improvement from the oppressive power structures of the day. And God says, no, what you need is a prophet who is going to give you a word from me, who's going to call you to repentance and give you eternal life. Our goal as Christians is not to make this world a better place to go to hell from, but it's to call people to be rescued from the coming judgment. John, he's a prophet, but there's something else about John's role. Verse 27 At the end of verse 26, he says he's much more than a prophet. He's not just another guy like Isaiah or Jeremiah. He's sort of at the the top of the list of prophets, the greatest of the prophets. Why? This is he of whom it is written. Where is it written? Well, it's written in the passage that Bill read for us. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now, Let me just read Malachi 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Jesus did something subtle in in quoting this. He turns a first-person pronoun, me, into a the, right? He, 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 He quotes it a little bit differently. Here's the implication. Malachi 3 and verse 1, God uses the first person pronoun, me. The messenger is going to come before me. If John the Baptist is the messenger, and if Jesus is the one coming after the messenger, Jesus is saying, I am God. This is an astounding statement. That's why I said John's role really matters because it sets up who Jesus is. If John is the messenger of the covenant, if he's the forerunner, if he's the one who prepares the way for Jehovah God, then Jesus is not just the Messiah, but God in the flesh. This is, this is astounding in Malachi 3. Why was John such a great person? Verse 28, among those born of women, there's not a greater than John. That second word prophet is not actually in the original. He's saying there's no greater human being born of women. That's just, uh, that's just a, a roundabout way of saying someone who is mortal man. Of those who are mortal human beings in history up to this point in time, He says, there's no one who is greater than John. Why? What made John so great? He was great because he pointed the way to the greater one. He said himself, there's one coming after me who is greater than me. John's greatness was not just found in the fact that John was a great prophet, but it was found in the fact that he pointed people to the greatest, to the greater, to Jesus Christ himself. He prepared the way by preaching repentance. Verse 28 makes another statement. Notice the end of the verse. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is amazing. So we have the old era, the old order, where John was the last man in the the old order. So if you think of the Old Testament. Jesus is now coming with the kingdom breaking in. He says to be in this new era, to be in my kingdom, is greater than being even the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Now that's not to say John the Baptist somehow was left out of the kingdom. He's not going to be in the kingdom. It's to say he's a transitional figure. He's bridging from the old era to the new era. He's bridging from the old covenant to the new covenant. John is bridging that. John is like... The torchbearer for the Olympic Games, right? Maybe there'll be Olympic Games this summer. Maybe there won't be. Depends on what they decide to do over there in Tokyo with COVID and all that. But there's the people who run the torch, and they have that relay around the world. It's pretty awesome. What makes bearing the torch so awesome? It's not because carrying torches around is a cool thing to do. It's because the Olympic Games are really, really awesome. And it's such an honor to be the one who's sort of the harbinger, the one who's announcing the games are coming. John is like the one who's bearing the Olympic torch. That's a great honor, right? To be able to carry the the Olympic torch, that would be a great honor for any one of us. But the greatness of carrying the Olympic torch comes from the fact that the games are a great thing. John was the greatest man of of the old order, but his glory and his greatness came from the fact of what he was pointing to. Right? Jesus Christ, that is what made John great, that he says, I must decrease, he must increase. That's what greatness is. And if you and I want to be great, greatness is not going to be found by, I'm going to be bigger than other people and more important than other people and have power over other people. 
Just as John found greatness by pointing forward to Jesus, we find greatness by pointing back to Jesus. If you want true greatness, point people to Jesus Christ. The greatest privilege you and I could ever have is to see someone enter the kingdom. To see someone bow the knee to Jesus. If you've had the privilege of leading a soul to Jesus, of being in the the, the labor and delivery room, if you will, to see someone born again, that is incredible. To see someone's life transformed and you get to be a little tiny part. You're just delivering the message. God's the one who's giving them new life. God's the one who's giving them faith. God's the one who's bringing them to repentance. But getting to be the messenger. Wow, what a privilege. Pointing back to Jesus. So John, his role, his greatness, he's a prophet. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's pointing the way to a new era. And guess what? You and I are living in the era that he pointed to. We're living in the kingdom that he anticipated and he announced. You and I are living in the days that the prophets foresaw. As great as John was, his greatness is no comparison to the greatness of the glory granted to you and me. To be a great prophet on earth is an amazing thing, but to be an average citizen of heaven is far greater. You say, I'm the humblest saint here. I'm just sort of a nobody here attending Cloverleaf Baptist Church. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom, and you're enjoying tremendous greatness. You sometimes wish you could live in the days of Abraham. Man, Abraham, like he got to see God lead and all these things. Or, man, Moses, if I could have been there when the Red Sea split. And I wonder what that looked like, where fish swimming by. You know, could you look out and see fish going by in the Red Like, what would that have been like? The plagues and fire from, like Elijah, man, seeing what, what Elijah got. Man, that would be amazing to be a part of. Jesus is saying this. To live now in the new covenant as citizens of his kingdom is a far greater privilege than anything they could have ever imagined. Just over a couple of pages, I'll give you one reference. Luke chapter 10, Jesus said this in verse 23. And he turned unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them. And to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. 1 Peter 1, 10 verses, verses 10 and 11 say, that what we experience, what we enjoy as Christians, angels desire to look into. They're kind of like, hey, angels, come over here. Let's, let's sort of peer over the ramparts of heaven. Okay, I'm speaking poetically. Let's watch the church service at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Here's these people who are in the new covenant. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them permanently. They are the temple of the living God. We don't go to a temple. We are the temple in the new covenant. Our sins are forgiven. Our eternal home is guaranteed. And they're looking at that and saying, that's crazy. Like, maybe there's angels sitting in on the sermon today. Like, I don't know how that works. But we, get, we are in on something that the prophets were like, we look forward to that. We long for that new covenant. We're in on something that angels are like, this is amazing. This is awesome. And yet, we take it so lightly. We take it for granted. We take it as just a, oh yeah, believer in Jesus Christ, a child of God. What a tragedy for us to have the greatest privilege in human history. And to be like, I can't be bothered to enjoy a relationship with God. Am I going out to a church service? It's such a burden. Like, why Sunday nights, really? Like, going back to prayer meeting? If we understood, brothers and sisters, what privilege we have, we would be like, I want to gather with God's people as much as I possibly can. If we understood the privilege it is for us to go directly into God's presence, to be able to go boldly, to not have to go through a priest and not go through a sacrifice because Jesus tore the veil and was the final sacrifice, oh, we would be on our knees bowing ourselves before God to enjoy that. We have this great privilege. We enjoy permanent access into God's presence. We enjoy the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We possess the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we have in our hands the completed canon of Scripture. Folks in the Old Testament only had scraps, little pieces of, uh, of what the larger plan of redemption was. For much of history, they just had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. We've got... The prophets, we have the book of Psalms, we have the Gospels, we have the epistles of, uh, of the, the leaders to the church, and we have it in access to us. Do you realize most Christians in history did not have a Bible? 
If you wanted to hear the Bible, you would come to church and hear somebody read it, and they may not even read it in a language you could understand. People died so that you could have the Bible in your language. And we have access to multiple translations, updated language, Bible study tools. We have a wealth and embarrassment of riches to understand God's truth, and we can't be bothered because we'd rather watch the football game. It doesn't make any sense, does it? God is so gracious to us to have this privilege. We'll come into our final point here. Jesus is going to rebuke the people's unbelief. Verse 29 Luke chapter 7. And the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. So those two big responses. The people who had been baptized by John the Baptist are like, yes, we agree with what Jesus says. We justify God. Now, that doesn't mean they make God righteous, but they affirm that God's way is right. The Pharisees, the lawyers, they rejected the counsel, the purpose of God for themselves. They rejected salvation. They rejected God's truth because they would not humble themselves to repent and hear the message of John. There's a couple of responses here. Those who are the sinners in verse 29 delight in what Jesus says. By the way, I think God loves taking notorious sinners and bringing them into his kingdom. The, the lawyers, the, the, the tax collectors, they were the real riffraff of the day. They were the people that everybody had written off. And they're the ones who flocked to John, who flocked to Jesus, who repent, who have transformed lives and are brought into the kingdom. There's no sinner who is beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no sin so great that you're like, man, I've really blown it. God can't forgive me. Oh, his grace is expansive. His mercy is infinite. His forgiveness readily available. I've been reading the Confessions of Augustine. He's recounting his life, his years, decades even, of running from God, engaging in immorality, just living a life, gets involved in false religion, and all of these horrible things. All the while, his godly mother, Monica, is weeping and praying for him for year after year and decade after decade until finally God gets a hold of his heart. And you'll be hard-pressed to find a theologian who has had a greater impact on the history of the church and indeed on Western civilization than Augustine who was a notorious sinner brought into the kingdom by God's grace. God shakes the world through men like Augustine, through Saul, though he was a notorious sinner, vindicating his purpose. Now, the other contrast, verse 29, the Pharisees, the lawyers, these are the religious people. They're self-righteous. They don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves as needing grace. They rejected John's baptism. They wouldn't humble themselves to go be baptized by this camel hair clad, would-be prophet in the wilderness. Oh, no, they're not sinners in their book. They were always so busy critiquing John and critiquing Jesus, they never stopped to critique their own hearts. You see, the doorway into the kingdom is a low one. And if you're not willing to stoop in humility and repentance, you'll bang your head and turn away. But if you're willing to come in humility, oh, I'm a sinner and I don't have anything to offer God, the doorway is open to you. Jesus illustrates this and we'll... Try to do this briefly. Whereunto shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? Jesus is like, I'm going to give a comparison. I'm going to give a parable. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another and saying, We've piped unto you, and you've not danced. We've mourned to you, and you've not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And ye say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. He's going to diagnose the diseased heart, the unbelieving heart of his generation with this parable. Uh, Bible scholar Daryl Bach, he's a tremendous Bible scholar. He's got a very erudite, educated name for this parable. He calls it the parable of the brats. That's a good name, right? The parable of the brats. So here's these bratty kids sitting in the marketplace, and they get out their little flute, right? Or maybe they had a little recorder like everyone learned in school, and they play a happy tune, and the other kids in the market don't start dancing. And they're like, why aren't you dancing? We played the pipe. Why aren't you dancing? That's kind of unreasonable, right, for me to go and sit down on the piano and play a happy tune and be like, why aren't you all dancing, right? Like, well, I didn't feel like doing it. Sorry. And then, they're like, and then they'll do a funeral dirge and a mourning, and they're like, why have you not wept? He's saying, you guys are like that. You you, you have this unreasonable demand, 
This picture, Marshall explains, it's a picture apparently of a group of children sitting down to make music while their companions perform more strenuous activities at their bidding. So what's harder, to play the flute or to dance? Well, dancing involves more physical effort, which is harder to, to, to sing a funeral dirge or to weep and to mourn. Well, weeping and mourning. In other words, what they are doing is they are insisting that John and Jesus dance to their tune. So they're like, we want John the Baptist to be Mr. Happy, and we want Jesus to be sad, and when they don't line up, they're like, oh, we're going to reject you. It doesn't matter what the presentation of the message is, they reject it. That's the sense of the parable. They say, John the Baptist, he's a Nazarite. Oh, he must be demon-possessed. We want someone who's happy and joyful. So Jesus comes along. He's happy. He's joyful. He goes to banquets. He drinks wine. He, gets in, he, he engages and interacts with people, and they're like, oh, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. He, he's an apostate according to the standard of Deuteronomy. The point is this. It didn't matter what the presentation of the message was. Their hearts were prone to unbelief and to reject it. It had nothing to do with the style of ministry. They might say, oh, if the, the style of the ministry were different, if John had a different personality, we would have believed. Like, well, here's Jesus. He's got a different personality than John. And they're like, either way, rejecting them. He's exposing the unbelief of their hearts. Both John and Jesus had very different styles of ministry, but they had the same message. They both insisted on repentance. Verse 35, but wisdom is justified of all her children. You say, what does that mean? Justified is to be declared right. It says, here's, wisdom is going to be vindicated by those who follow wisdom. Children follow their parents. It's sort of the picture here. This is a call to faith. He says, the fact that there are people who believed John and Jesus, whose lives were transformed by their message, vindicates that their message is true. There were those individuals in that crowd that day. They were a minority who heard the message of John, and they were baptized in repentance. When Jesus came, they're like, this guy is the Messiah, and we believe in him. And Jesus says the existence of those people whose lives have been transformed proves that this message is true, even if everyone else rejects it. How else can you explain the power of Christianity? Christianity redeems murderous men like Paul the Apostle and transforms them. It relieves the tormented consciences of the Martin Luthers of the world. It unleashes the creative power of the Hallelujah Chorus. Christianity has transformed more lives, motivated motivated more generosity, lifted up more people than any other message, any other religion in all of human history. And I get it. Listen, there's mistakes that Christians have made over history. There were Christians who defended slavery and segregation, but it was Christians who called those things evil. Christianity has built more orphanages, resulted in more, more schools being started, more hospitals being founded, more evils being eradicated from society than any other religion on the planet. To me, that is evidence, that is vindication, that God's wisdom and God's way is true. Now, it's not true because of those things, but those are evidences that point back. Look at how Christianity transforms people from being selfish, self-focused sinners and turns them into sacrificing saints. Wisdom is justified of her children. So John and Jesus, their ministries are linked. To reject one of them is to reject the other one. He says, you guys are like bratty children who cannot be pleased. It doesn't matter what what is made for lunch or wants something else. They're like the cat who's on the wrong side of every door. That's the generation of Jesus. That is the heart of humanity. But still today, Jesus offers grace. He offers forgiveness to all who will turn to him. Came to his own. His own received him not. The wall of lead meeting him on the beach. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Father, we praise you.